<clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks uh, for our time. We ask, oh Lord, that you rescue us, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from our own sins. Help us to rest well in the goodness of your son. Give us great wisdom, we ask. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, go ahead and hop on Zoom for those in class if you want to read along. <clears throat> Augustine, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the inseparable Trinity. Augustine in a Latin pro-Nicene Trinitarian vision. So Augustine's theological contribution to the Trinity is situated as a more mature expression of Latin Trinitarian theology that really precedes uh, Hilary, Hilary of Poitiers. When I was first introduced to patristics, I actually thought Hilary was a female. Hilary is a male. <laughs> it took me a minute uh, to, to put that together. Hilary of Poitiers, P-O-I-T-O-I-E-R, Poitiers, and Ambrose. Anyone who knows Augustine's life should realize the importance of Ambrose in Augustine's conversion. So Augustine's Trinitarian theology has been criticized. It's been criticized um, unduly in recent years that see him overly reliant on Platonic metaphysics or a Platonic doctrine of God's unity that suppresses proper distinctions of personhood. In other words, part of the criticism that has been leveled against Augustine is his over-description of the unity of God rather than the plurality of persons in God. <clears throat> Recent scholarship, I think, has sought to observe uh, that his Trinitarian theology and his uh, 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 that sought to observe both his Trinitarian theology and his exegetical foundations, and really to help scholars and students regain Augustine's Trinitarian vision, I want to heartily uh, recommend this book. Um, this book, Augustine and the Trinity, uh, by Lewis Ayers. Augustine and the Trinity by Lewis Ayers. There is no better book on Augustine on the Trinity than this book right here. Augustine and the Trinity by Lewis Ayers. So he offers to contribute two items to our understanding, and he sort of notes these items. He's, so first, Augustine struggles to articulate the Trinitarian communion or life of the three irreducible persons and his developing understanding of how we grow in the understanding of the Trinity, how we progress towards the contemplation of God, that is, participation in the Trinitarian life. So these are items that Lewis... Uh, Dr. Ayers, Professor Ayers, will walk uh, through in that particular book. So in this sort of talk, this lecture, I want to present Augustine as a Latin, pro-Nicene, Trinitarian thinker. This deep into the class, that phrase should mean something to you. 
right? That phrase should mean something to you. Just through a quick summary, what does pro-Nicene mean? What does pro-Nicene mean? After Nicaea? After Nicaea and in favor of Nicaea, but also affirming what three uh, theological topics? Eternal generation of the Son. Eternal generation of the Son. Inseparable activity. Inseparable activity. The person in the nature. Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and yet all are God. Go ahead. Who is this? The person in nature person. distinction. Bingo, Daniel. A clear distinction of both person and nature. So that's what I mean by pro-Nicene. I think we're deeper into the class now that we can help articulate that. So a clear distinction of person and nature, eternal generation, and inseparable activities of the persons. So I want to talk about how Augustine is as a Latin pro-Nicene Trinitarian thinker that sought to wrestle with scriptures to provide a vision of the Trinity, sort of pushing it back on this notion that he's overly platonic. The more we read the fathers, I think it's an unduly criticism to say they're just influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. Well, maybe, but there's a lot of scripture that they're wrestling with. And so I think it's an unfair criticism when people sort of sweep over the hand, the patristics are taken by platonic philosophy. Nope, I I don't think so. Letter seven. Uh, I'm not going to do a full reflection on letter seven. Um, Written circa 389. What I do want to show you is a clear confession of the Trinity, simply noted three years after his conversion. Hmm. You want to talk about goals for people that you're Hmm. equipping? (laughs) Let me just throw throw that your way. These are goals for people that you're equipping. Uh, I think we uh, think we've simplified uh, too much um, or devalued the importance of theological uh, equipping as the discipleship process. Um, when we look at Mary the Magnificent in Luke 1, Luke 2, how old is she? And that theological confession is rich. She's probably 13, 14, or 15, and that's her confession. Here's Augustine, um, who's confessing this three years after his conversion. He writes this. For, according to the Catholic faith. Now again, what does that mean? I want to try to overly stress this. I'm going to stress this ad nauseum. For according to the Catholic faith, meaning what? Catholic meaning what? Universal. Universal, right? We're not even thinking in terms of Roman Catholic here. That's not a category. This is what the Catholic faith believes. In other words, the universal Christian faith is this. The Trinity is proposed to our belief and believed and even understood by a few saints and holy persons as so inseparable 
that whatever action is performed by, it must be thought to be performed at the same time by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. The Son does not do anything which the Father and the Holy Spirit do not also do. Three years after his conversion, he's confessing what God. Say it again. Inseparable activity. That's what that statement is sort of confessing right there. Later on, he'll do in, uh, an exposition of the African Creed. Uh, if you notice, uh, 389, that letter, four years later, he'll do an exposition of the African Creed in his area. But I want to then now move into his book on the Trinity, De Trinitate. De Trinitate was written over the course of his life. We look at that work and it's, it looks very mature. Yes, it does. Uh, yes, it does. It's probably edited a couple of times by him, uh, and it's written at different stages in his life. So near the beginning of book one, Augustine gives a lengthy confession of the Trinity. This confession he calls is the Catholic faith. So once more, this is sort of a normal expression by him. I think it's really important for us to learn this. Can we confess the Trinity that is universally believed by all Christians everywhere? That's essentially what that statement means. To be sure, this confession reflects pro-Nicene vision of the Trinity as the universal confession of the Trinity. <clears throat> Lewis Ayers, I'm going to be, uh, just to reveal my hand, when Lewis says jump, I pretty much jump. Uh, uh, he is the top patristic scholar uh, in the world, um, probably among the top five that are living. Um, the dear, 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 dear mentor. Help me, help me think of multiple items. Lewis is my supervisor uh, with my work in Trinity, or with my work in Cyril. So Ayers divides this section according to three divisions, which I will likewise assume, as marked by A, B, and C. And I want to quote De Trinitate 1, 47, uh, sorry, uh, De Trinitate, book 1, chapter 4, section 7. You want to talk about uh, enumerating patristic text? Every book is different. So frustrating. <laughs> you got to figure out how, how that works. So I want to provide it in full with those letter divisions. So A, the purpose of all Catholic commentators. I have been able to read on the divine books of both Testaments who have written before on the Trinity, which God is, has been to teach that according to the scriptures, Father and Son and Holy Spirit is in inseparable equality of one substance, present a divine unity. And therefore, there are not three gods, but one God. 
So here, this is a clear confession, clear confession of person-nature distinction. Not only a person-nature distinction, but the nature as it is in each person is indivisible. It's inseparable. So not only are three persons, but now we're talking about a divine unity. Inseparable. B. Although indeed, although indeed the Father has begotten the Son, and therefore he who is the Father is not the Son, and the Son is begotten by the Father, and therefore he who is the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but only the Spirit of the Father and of the Son himself, co-equal to the Father and the Son, and belonging to the threefold unity. I hope each of you can say a hearty amen to that confession right there. That is very clear a Trinitarian confession. That is very clear. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And yet there's an inseparable threefold unity with God. Not only this, how is this different than Nicaea? Let me just throw this out there. How is this confession a little bit different than Nicaea? Remember what Nicaea says about the Spirit? Right, larger statement about the Father, an even bigger statement about the Son, and then a short little, I believe the Spirit. <laughs> right. So you can tell that Augustine is post-Constantinople because he's now reflecting more thoroughly on the Spirit. More so, Augustine proceeds the Numatamachian controversy. Numatamachian controversy. We'll talk about that next week. Numatamachian controversy was the controversy post-Nicaea, but before Constantinople, that we just didn't know what to do with the spirit. How do we talk about spirit? Okay. C. It was not, however, <clears> that <throat> this same three, their teaching continues, that was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified and buried under Pontius Pilate, rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven, but the Son alone. So here you're, he's getting into not only in A and B, we're talking about the indivisible of nature, distinction person in nature. Now we're getting into the unique activity of the Son. That's what's happening here in C. It's only the Son that was born, suffered, crucified, died. Nor was it the same three that came down upon Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, or came down on the day of Pentecost after the Lord's ascension, with a roaring sound from heaven, as though a violent gust were rushing down, and in divided tongues as of fire, but the Holy Spirit alone, right? It's not the Father who descended as a dove. It's not the Son 
who descended as a dove, but it's the spirit who descends as a dove. This is why we don't say the father died on the cross. No, this is why we don't say the spirit died on the cross. Rather, it is the appropriation of personhood in the son, that the son in all of who he is as God and human suffered on the cross. <clears throat> Nor was it this same three that spoke from heaven, you are my son, either at his baptism by John or on the mountain when the three disciples were with him. Nor when the resounding voice was heard, I have both glorified it, that is my name, and will glorify it again. But it was the Father's voice alone addressing the Son, although just as Father and Son and Holy Spirit are inseparable, so do they work inseparable. This is also my faith, inasmuch it is the Catholic faith. So let's figure out what he's doing in these three sections, A, B, and C. In A, in A, Augustine suggests that the reading of the scriptures and the commentary on the scriptures point to a particular vision of the Trinity. Scriptures present the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as equal and a divine unity. He uses the term inseparable equality of one substance. In section C, he highlights inseparable activity. Section C, he highlights inseparable activity. Here, in section A, he regards the persons to coexist likewise in an inseparable equality. While one substance comprises the Godhead, Each of the three persons display a divine unity and a quality of substance. Furthermore, there are not three gods, but there is one God that is derived from unity of substance. Questions? Okay. This is heavy. Right? This is this is heavy the theological expression. Okay. <coughs> so and section. Yep. So he's talking about the personhood of the unity, right? Uh -huh. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. Uh -huh. And you, you talked about why we don't say that the Father died on the cross, but it's the Son. So he's referring to the Son. The person's, um, I guess, activity or the economy of a person. The individuality of a person and the activity unique to the person. Oh. In section A, he's trying to talk about the shared substance in the unique persons. In section B, we're going to get a clear distinction of person and nature. In section C, 
It's what's called the appropriation of personhood. What is unique and proper to individual persons? It's the son who dies. It's the spirit who comes at Pentecost. It's the father who bellows his voice. Go ahead. But he said that one person does not do something without the others at the same time mm-hmm. doing it. Inseparable activity. So how does Jesus die on the cross without the other two That's at the right. same time? I, I, I love it. So <laughs> glad you asked that question. Did everyone on the on the screen hear that? Good. That is a dire question that we need to ask. Are you ready for me to, to break your heart over some <laughs> worship songs? <laughs> Guess who doesn't turn his face away? No, the father doesn't turn his face away. If the father turned his face away, now there's a separation in the Trinity, and the Trinity is now divisible. That's heresy. Now, I don't think that that song is heretical. Let me pull back the reins on that. What happens in the incarnation is not how to describe God eternal. And I think we get, I think we get mixed up on that. When we read the gospels, we are reading 30 years about one of the person and not how he always acts eternally. Why? Why? Prior to creation, Father, Son, and Spirit together one nature. Then comes the mission of the Son. The missio. The missio, the mission, the sending of the Son. And what happens to the Son? He now acquires a second nature. So we have two natures in the one person. We have two natures in the one person, after death and resurrection, the son finally returns to his former glory in the exaltation. So we sort of have three big seasons of the son. We have three big seasons of the son. We have the son eternal. We have the son incarnate. We have the son exalted. I think Philippians 2 points to that threefold set of divisions. So what do we then do with the cross? My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why are you forsaking me? Okay, we have to understand that. Here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that there's a, a divisible uh, 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 division in between persons. It can't mean that. It can't mean a separation of nature. So there's a couple of items that it could mean. Either, either Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, Psalm 22. Is this Psalm 22? Okay, thank you. It's fulfilling prophecy, Psalm 22. Uh, that's option one. Option two, God in, or sorry, the Son in all of his humanity is bellowing forth. My God, my God, there's death upon me. So there is a separation that happens but it's not in the Son, the divine Son, but in the Son as fully human. It's not the Father who pours out his wrath on the Son. Why? Because of inseparable activity, 
one nature, one will, one activity. It's the Father, Son, and Spirit pouring out the eternal wrath upon the human son. So I think that's how we get around those items. Go ahead. So you're saying that while Jesus was incarnated, an eternal Jesus was doing actions. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Okay. Divine Son. So eternal, the eternal Son is different than the incarnate Son. Not that there are two sons. We're at a different point. The eternal Son has one nature. The incarnate Son has two natures. In that two natures, this is what we uh, Augustine's going to tease this out here in a moment. But you have the Son who is in now physical manifestation, and we now can no longer see the, the invisible Father, invisible Spirit. This is in the same way that the Great Commission is true. Right now, right now, how? I don't know. Outside of God is outside of time and is equally present with everyone here simultaneously without division. In other words... Right now, God is present with Matt Moreno's prayers in his own soul, equally without division as he is with Chris and Darren and us here. They're in three different states. Matt's in California, Chris and Darren, two other states, but us together here simultaneously without division. So somehow, the Father Eternal, Spirit Eternal, Son Eternal are with the Son incarnate. I don't know what that looks like. I don't. I have no clue what all that entails. I just know that there are Trinitarian pillars that we have to uphold as we talk about this. One of them, indivis indivisible nature. You can't divide the nature of God. Because there are three persons does not now mean we divide that nature. Right? We still have to uphold the unity of God. So the inseparable activity is talking about not, not, the, not the appropriation of the personhood, but yeah. it's talking about when the um, how how the nature is coexisting as one unit or one yep. one unity, and then how they are yep. unified in work. Yes. Is that work salvation? It can be. It could also be creation, right? It could also be creation. So Ephesians 1, flip over to Ephesians 1. This is, this is one of my favorite texts to describe the appropriation of personal. One of my favorite texts to describe appropriation of personal. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. Paul begins there, verse 3, uh, blessed be which person? God, the Father. The Father. He's now going to talk about not only qualities or properties, but also activities of the Father. What does the Father do? Blesses us in the Son. What else? Election. The election is the appropriation of fatherhood activity. What else does he do? What else does he do in this text? Yep. 
So election and predestination are bound up in the activity of the Father. Look down after, uh, I, I believe it's verse 6. Does it switch to the beloved? Is that verse 6 or verse 7? Like right at the end of 6. Yep, so then beginning of 6 into 7, sorry, end of 6, beginning of 7, Paul now transitions to a new person. What does the son do? The son redeems. What else? Sheds his blood. What else? Somehow reveals the economy or the dispensation, depending on what translation you have, sort of the household of the father's plan. So the son's a revealer back to the father. Now in verse 12, I believe, maybe verse 11, we get to the final person. What does the spirit do? Bingo. Is the seal. So here is Trinitarian soteriology. We want to use that sort of expression. All three have individual actions. One action is not without the other two. Let's talk about the shovel. Let's talk about a shovel. I don't know if anyone does spade work in the yard. Uh, when you dig a hole, that front tip is the first thing to touch the ground to do the activity. Eventually, that activity will coincide with the two top corners. When one acts, the other two are acting with the one, but in the background. So that's how we can still talk about inseparable activity and the unique activity of a single person. Okay? We're dipping over into theology one right now. Go ahead. While you were reading like earlier about the, the son and the spirit, like a dog, and it was only each mm -hmm. of them. So I was wondering, like, why do we have to talk about inseparable activity? Why can we not say, like, the three persons work together according to the same will of, of the Trinity? Because when we say inseparable activity, it's like when the Holy Spirit was ascending or descending, like, the Father and the Son was also descending as well. I understand. Yep, I understand. Yep, I get I get what you're asking. So inseparable activity. Oh, it's not brighter than anymore. I feel like all of them. It's like exciting <laughs> professors are just like, boom, how can I destroy this as quickly as I can? Oh, this is a good marker. <laughs> uh, when we talk about the Godhead, uh, we're talking about one nature. One will. I don't think they can see the whiteboard. One. Can you move the screen? That's yeah, I'm asking them if yeah. they can see Activity. Yeah, good call. Whoever said that. So this is sort of a, a major premise. One activity is premise off of a one nature. This is why the sun in his incarnation has how many natures? Two natures, therefore, how many wills? Two wills. And now there are two distinct activities, one of God, one of human, uh, uh, one of humanity. 
So we'll just call this um, two activity sounds odd. But it has to distinguish itself from the eternal nature. This is why we can say the sun dies and it does not affect the eternal singular divine nature. Inseparable activity, inseparable activity is meant to talk about this to root itself in a single nature. If God is not an instant, if the persons don't act, if the persons act separately, it's an implication then that are there multiple wills in God? The answer is no. Go ahead, and I want to get back to Augusta. So, we're to explain some layman's terms that average people in our church. Can we just say that Christ, because he's both God and man, has two wills, you know, yes. his divine will and his human will? Yes. Yep. Because I'm trying to think, like, how would I explain this to, like, just the average layman? Like, Absolutely. And I think the best, the best uh, set of texts, the best proof text for that is the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, you see binatarian dialogue, the father and the son dialoguing. The father wants the son to do something, and what does the son do? I don't want to. And like the, the Godhead is sort of put at stake here. Can the son override the father? Actions now, because at the end of the day, even in the two wills, it's the divine will that wins out. Okay, so let's get back to Augustine because I want to be able to break when we at a, at a proper time. So in section B, in section B, Augustine conveys a clear distinction between person and nature. This distinction is proper for pro-Nicene Trinitarian theologians. Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. So in describing these relationships, Augustine displays the personal properties and, and logical irreducibility of these persons. The Father begets a personal property and therefore cannot be the son, a logical irreducibility. You can't reduce beyond that. The son is begotten, which is a personal property. What is personal property? It is unique to the person, right? The father is not begotten. Only the son is begotten. That's the, that is the personal property but the father can't be the son because it's a logical irreducibility. So when he describes the spirit right here, when he describes the spirit, Augustine notes that he is both of the father and of the son. Why is that important? Augustine is a Western, therefore not an Eastern, and we now see him confessing double procession of the Son of the Father. That is double procession. That is unique to Western Trinitarian theology. 
language is proper to the Western confession of the filioque. Can you um, explain uh, what do you mean by double procession? Because sorry, I don't know. I keep being percent. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. You know, if I threw this at my kids, they will be completely lost. Yep, as they would, as they should be. <laughs> uh, yeah, trust me. At the Wilhite home, we have we have like theology cards that we review at night, <laughs> and tonight's the filioque. That's a total joke. <laughs> I think I think too many people are serious. Oh man. Yeah, uh, double procession. From whom does the son proceed? Single procession. Only from the father. From whom does the spirit proceed? From the father, filioque. It's a Latin expression and the sun. From whom does the spirit proceed? That is the heart of the filioque. What is the origin of the spirit? The origin of the sun is begottenness from a single person. What is the origin of the spirit? Is it single from the Father alone? Is it double from the Father from the Son? I would hold to its vote. I hold to the filioque. So now in section C, Augustine appeals to the scriptures to display the logical irreducibility of the persons. Ayers summarizes as follows. He says this, section C on the final phrase of B, which refers to the unity of the Trinity by emphasizing that even though the doctrine of inseparable operations is a central Catholic principle, we must still follow scripture and accord each of the divine Three, a specific role in some sense. This is sort of going back to the claim that is Augustine just overly platonic? The answer is no. The answer is no. To describe the Trinity, he's appealing to the scriptures. So the co-equal, threefold unity also includes what's called the economia of persons. Who here has heard of the economy of the, the persons? Is that new to anybody? Is that, okay, good. Yeah, good, it's okay. Economia, God's activity, odd extra with creation. The economy is the three persons, odd extra activities with creation. So the incarnation is part of the economy of the Son. Pentecost is part of the economy of the Spirit. So for example, Augustine points to the incarnational career of the Son. The three were not born, crucified, resurrected, and ascended, except the Son alone. The three did not descend as a dove 
or come down on the day of Pentecost except the Spirit alone. Nor did the three speak from heaven, you are my son at the baptism and on the mountain, or tell the son, I have glorified it and will glorify it again, except father alone. Hence, the irreducibility. So then these examples from scriptures display the individual activities of the persons and yet, Augustine still mentions inseparable activities. This unity, this unity in uh, and possessing an inseparable nature corresponds to an inseparable activity. He notes this. This is Augustine. Although just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are inseparable in nature, so do they work inseparably in activity. This appears to be the first time that Augustine uses the phrase inseparabiliter operunt. Translated, they operate inseparably. To refer to the doctrine of inseparable operation. Okay, any other questions so far? Any other questions so far? Nick, Nick will I add a, a quick question? Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, John. Um, earlier, <coughs> when, <coughs> sorry, when you're talking about the double procession, you said um, there was a difference between the Western and the Eastern. What was the Eastern thought on the on the origins of the spirit? Uh, just on the bottom, single procession. Oh, okay, single procession. Okay, thank you. Is it safe to say that all three of the inseparable is it safe to say that all three are just pointing at the unity of the Trinity? Yes. That's what it seems like. That's it's an aim. It seems like it's, it's saying that they are different things possible, but it's all coming down to one unity. God's unity, God is one, one in nature, does not triumph over personal, personal properties. Personal properties is the term to refer to properties and activities unique only to a person. So we don't say that the Father is begotten. We don't say the spirit is begotten. So begottenness is a personal property and is not part of the irreducible unity of God. But it's a personal property of the, of the Son. So Aaron is exactly right. 
This discussion is aimed at trying to make sense of unity and distinction and how do we understand the individual activities without jettisoning the unity of separate. Otherwise, the, the opposite side of this coin would be there are three individual persons acting of their own accord. So now you have just three, you have three separate that's the opposite of this. Could we say that the community deceptiveness that what we're really saying is that that God is that there's a paradox in terms of the the unity, which is distinct, but also the personal, the different uh, personal attributes or activities of the members of the Trinity. So this is a common objection we hear from like from Muslims and like Jehovah's Witnesses, oh well the Trinity is a contradiction. But mm -hmm. no, we're not saying that. It's a, it's a paradox. Mm -hmm. You know, so trying to think of this in a logical way. Yep. So there are two things yeah. at play here. So two things at play here. This is why pro-Nicene item number one. You have to affirm a unity of nature, distinction of person. So when we say God is three, we're not talking about nature, right? And it, in interfaith dialogue, they don't hear it. Right? They don't hear that at all. They can't make the distinction of nature and person. In Christian theology, we have to make the distinction of both nature and personhood. The other one, that let me let me sort of teach you kind of a big term. Anyone have heard the term ineffable? Ineffable. It's the ineffable trinity. In other words, it is uttermost in terms of mysterious. I hold to the ineffable existence of God. God is infinite. I am finite. I only know God based on by the items that he has revealed. And he has not fully revealed, but has revealed enough about himself. So out of the gate, we have to affirm it, the ineffability of God. I am finite. My language is finite, trying to describe an infinite being. Already out of the gate, mysterious. What that doesn't mean is knowability, and what it's often used as is to promote intellectual laziness amongst Christians. I don't think we've hit mystery yet. In our discussion, I think there are mystery. There is mystery. I don't think we've hit it yet on discussion. Okay. Any questions? Yeah. Go ahead. When you say no ability, you're saying it sounds like you're saying that when you say no ability, it's like comprehensively because comprehensively, but because obviously that's why I think it's impossible for us to have comprehensive. Absolutely. That's right. So God is knowable. God is not knowable exhaustively. All right, let's take a, a quick five. Rest your mind, rest your brain, right? What we just talked about was pretty heavy. Um, and then we're gonna come back and sort of simplify it before life. So get a, go get a drink and rest the mind and, uh, and then we'll come back to this. Okay, let's go to circle back around. We're gonna take a break from Augustine.
And I want to give you a writing prompt just to sort of reflect right now on the spot. You've been steeped in Trinitarian thought. You've been steeped in Christological thought. Uh, or you've been steeped in pneumatological thought. You've seen the Nicene Creed. You've seen uh, other personal creeds. One of the statements that I really enjoy by Augustine is this right here. Yep, right here. I love that statement. This is also my faith, as it is in as much it is the Catholic faith. So in other words, the Nicene Creed is a Catholic confession, universal confession. But what Augustine is doing is he is also doing a personal confession, and it's lined up in a Nicene world. If you sort of see, if you can kind of hold those two items in tension. So what I want us to do right now, maybe let's spend 20 minutes on this. Legitimately think through and write out a statement that begins with, I believe, I affirm. Maybe if you're a pastor in a church or influential in a local setting, maybe even say, we believe. And then have three articles. What are the three articles? Paterology, Christology, pneumatology. Article one, the doctrine of the Father. Article two, doctrine of the Son. Article three, doctrine of the Spirit. Try your hand on this. Try your hand on this. So we'll take uh, house 20 minutes. You said doctrine of the Father. You're not necessarily talking about doctrine of God. Could be. Right. How does the Nicene Creed? Pretty Nicene. A Nicene. Oh, yeah. yeah, so let me pull that. Um, if anyone needs the, the Council of Kinsig, right? Someone's doing the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the Nicene Confession. This is what I want you to look at. You look at this right here. This is all that is in Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. So it's doctrine of God slash Father. Hmm. Good question. We're supposed to be one for all three, or just one that we've been working We believe, and then include the three articles. Sweet little girl, as I was headed out, said, Daddy, you need lunch. So she packed my fruit snacks and granola bar. Sweet little girl.
Are we trying to I'd be interested to see what doctrines are valuable. Look at scripture to write the sort of oh, of course, oh, of course, yeah, oh, of course.
You're feeling how hard this actually is, right? It's like every word is like the right word. Maybe. Maybe not starting to create words. Maybe I think it's the right word. Maybe not really. Makes me appreciate them like the men who actually wrote this like a brain and lingering. More so, more so. Jared, Matt, and Joe, we doing all right? It's a little harder, probably harder than we thought. <laughs> Darren, Jonah, we're doing all right. Daniel, Chris, doing okay. It's good. Keep working. I hope what this shows you. I hope what this shows you. 
is the amount of care you have to put into something to take care of your people. Right? Could you imagine now writing this? And thousands of people confess this. Right? You can feel that pressure. I'm having trouble trying to find like a good balance of yep. not being like overly wordy, but also yep. not, um, you know, including something very important. Yep, that's exactly right. One of the debates preceding Nicaea was homoousios is not a is not a biblical term, so we shouldn't use it. One of the questions I'm going to ask you is how many unbiblical terms are in your group? It's going to be one of my questions for you. And you'll be shocked at how many there are. So I think John Webster. John Webster brilliantly helps us with biblical reasoning. Dogmatic theology and scripture merge together to create biblical reason. Sometimes we need words more than scriptural words to help explain the topic, but we're guided and governed by the scriptures. It's hard, very hard to do. But shouldn't biblical reasoning be debatable and not uh, you know, stamped down? 100%. 100%. I didn't suggest that. Right, but I'd say the church fathers were saying that oh, yeah. like a lot of what they said was heresy. Oh, that heresy store is like yielded to anybody and her mother. <laughs> yeah. Some of the so some of the things they do, I'm just man. Go go enjoy coffee. Take like a little a little break and look at the ocean. Stop. <laughs> cool down a bit. <laughs> That's the one thing I don't like. So, like, in my work in Cyril right now, if he doesn't agree, it, so it's a dialogue. It's him and one other person. It's like the book is you're watching them have a conversation back and forth. If Hermios does not agree with Cyril, he calls him an unwise character. It's <laughs> chill, totally chill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all throughout church history like that. <laughs> That's a number. Okay. 15 seconds. All right. Who is brave enough to read theirs? Looks like Darren said no. Matt says no. 
Jared looks like he said yes, then that threatens what he's going to do my coffee next time at the arcade. <laughs> who, wants to, who wants to take a go? Go for it. I believe in God the Father. Okay. Yep, yeah, good. Hold, hold on one second, Chris. We'll come back to you. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. God created man to worship him and to love him, but as a just God who allows man to choose to live under his rule or not. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate in the flesh to live a perfect life and die as a perfect sacrifice for all those who confess their sins and turn back to God in obedience. Christ is the example for which I aspire. I believe in the Holy Spirit of God, through whom the repentant are born again in new life. The Holy Spirit works to protect the elect and help them become who God wants them to be. Excellent. Good work. Okay, good work. Okay, let's let's have a balanced approach. Uh, we're going to comment on that. So I really appreciate just the vulnerability. Be gentle in what you bring forward. Let's bring up one item that was really helpful. One item that I thought, oh, do we want to say that that's Catholic Christianity? Okay, who wants to go first? So maybe let's say something positive about that. What was an item in there that's helpful, clear, that you want to use for your own? It had a good emphasis on personal redemption. Yes, I noticed the same. Good. That's helpful. That was really helpful. What would be item where it caused you to sort of tilt your head and say, every Christian has to sign off on this? Going to bring that up. Be generous. Okay. Darren, do you have something? You're unmuted. So I thought, oh, it's okay. I thought you were getting ready to talk. No. So here, let me just vocalize it. The free will part, right? In in the pattern, I just don't know if anyone, I don't know if everyone could sign off on that. But that, so what that could turn into is a personal creed, right? Just that it, it, it demonstrates a, a, a conviction, a theological conviction, which is totally fine. I just don't know if the whole church could affirm that part, just to throw that out there. Uh, the question that I did say that I was going to ask, what language did he use that was not a biblical language or a biblical vocabulary? Did you hear any? Yay or nay? Read it again. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. God created man to worship him and to love him, but is a just God who allows man to choose to live under his rule. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate in the flesh, to live a perfect life and die as a perfect sacrifice for all those who confess their sins and turn back to God in obedience. Christ is the example for which I aspire. I believe in the Holy Spirit of God, through whom the repentant are born again in new life. The Holy Spirit works to protect the elect and help them become who God wants them to be. Any unbiblical or unscriptural language. Not that it's an unbiblical idea, just the language that's used. What'd you hear? Anybody? Did he say aspire? Aspire. Aspire? I don't know about specifically uh, the spirit protecting the elect. I don't know if that's quite how the Bible would phrase it. 
good. So this is just a helpful exercise. So going back to the creed, the concept of usias and homo usias created massive debates because it's not in the Bible. Not in the Bible, we don't use it. So yeah, good. Daniel, thanks for that. Hey, thank you for venturing out. Chris, do you want to try your hand at it? Sure, I'll go. Uh, I believe in one supreme and eternally existent God who is revealed in three distinct yet unified persons. God the Father, creator of all, supreme in being and authority, eternally holy in all his being, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and eternally truth. God the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, incarnated, not born. He is the instrument of all creation. By him all things were made. He is the instrument of salvation for all of the elect through belief in his activity of death and resurrection on our behalf. He is now glorified and ruling at the right hand of God as the King of Kings and will one day triumphantly return for his church. God the Spirit, who proceeds from both God the Father and God the Son, empowers the church, inspires the scriptures, and seals the church, guaranteeing their salvation. Excellent job. That's it. Yeah, good, good work. Um, so same question, uh, highlight one item that you thought, well, that was really helpful. And I think I want to use that or I found that comment helpful. Well, the comment on the sun incarnate, not born was helpful. Yeah. Or oh, sorry. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Say, say that line one more time, Chris. Um, oh, who is eternally begotten of the father, begotten, not made, incarnate. Did not born. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, someone's done that. Oh, all right, helpful. Good. Uh, maybe one comment on just sort of caused you to sort of tilt your head and thought, I don't know if that's universally thought. Um, and I want to reflect on that more. Be generous. Go ahead. Uh, at the end, you said the spirit guarantees salvation. Which could be controversial. The church guaranteeing their salvation. Yeah. Yeah. So drawing from a feet as he's the seed. Yep. Yeah. Oh, cutting it in Yeah, Chris, you cut it in half. Yep, totally got it. What, are you okay with that or still you raise that? Are these it's like Catholic, Catholic Universal? Yeah, that would would spark controversy, right? Very much so. That last comment of the spirit would probably spark controversy. Out, maybe not in our circles, but outside of other in other circles, right? Um, uh, one my third, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was some language that he used that wasn't scriptural? I'm not saying that the idea isn't scriptural. But what extra language did he use to help describe? Can we hear it again? Yep. Chris, Chris, go ahead. Read through it all the way again. I believe in one, one supreme and eternally existent God who was revealed in three distinct yet unified persons. God the Father, creator of all. All, supreme in being and authority, 
eternally holy in all of his being, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, eternally truth. God the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, incarnated, not born. He is the instrument of all creation. By him all things were made. He is the instrument of salvation for all of the elect through belief in his activity of death and resurrection on our behalf. He is now glorified and ruling at the right hand of God as the King of Kings and will one day triumphantly return for his church. God the Spirit, who proceeds from both God the Father and God the Son, empowers the church, inspires the scriptures, and seals the church, guaranteeing their salvation. Omnipotent? Yeah, yeah, good. Those omnis, go ahead. Uh, was that Daniel? Go ahead. Persons? Thank you. Yeah, both of those. That's right. So, Chris, are you present? Oh, no, Chris, you're not present. I, I want to chuckle at this because we're thinking, oh my gosh, this is like staple Trinitarian language. Did you hear Chris's opening line? Hmm. None of that's in the Bible. Right? That's really odd, though, to say, though, right? So it communicates that when we're trying to speak scripturally, we're creating and using our own language governed by the scriptures to try to describe the eternal God. That was excellent. So, yeah, the omnis language. And then, Daniel, you brought up the one that I was going to bring up. Person. Like, for which the Bible never uses person. Right? And that's bizarre. Like, after knowing how deep we are in this discussion, right, it, it feels odd now actually saying that out loud. Person is not in the Bible. <laughs> right. uh, maybe one more. Maybe one more. Maybe one more. That's fine. Yep, go for it. Um, then, um, I don't have any mind that stumble about this. Yep. Um, we believe in one God, in essence, in one essence, and three in person, God the Father who was and is and will be has begotten, begotten the Son, was never created, and the Spirit is of the Father and the Son. And then I kind of copy the missing definitely. The Son is the very light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. The three persons of God who can be never separated, who share the same 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 nature, works as one in one single activity. Yeah. So we in finite cannot comprehend the totality of the Trinity. We hold to this totality faith of ineffable existence of God. Good. I was waiting for you to finish. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent job, Aaron. So same process. What was one item in that creed that you thought, oh, that was really helpful? I appreciate that. I agree with that. I can see that. Matt, go ahead. I want to call on you. Always like uh, using the word essence, having essence or consubstantial. That's always good. So yeah, good. I, I could have added that to mine. Yeah, good, good. Thanks, Matt. Um, <clears throat> what was one item in that uh, uh, creed 
that sort of cause you to tilt your head and think, can all Christians affirm that? Read your last two lines. Yeah, maybe last two or three. Um, the three persons of God who can be never separated, who share the same native, um, same nature, works as one in one single activity. Though we be finite, cannot comprehend the totality of truth. We hold to this solid faith of the ineffable existence of God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I actually really like all, all of what was in there. It's good. Uh, let's now ask sort of the third question. You might need to read it again after this. Uh, just sort of people can read with new ears. Uh, what was stated in the creed that you can now state? It's not Bible, right? That's not like in the scriptures. And so again, make sure you're hearing my distinction. Not that it's unscriptural. I'm just saying it's not scriptural language. Those are two different things. Go ahead, Aaron. Read it again, then we'll, we'll comment on it. We believe in one God and that's in one essence in Christian. God the Father who was and is and will be has begotten the Son who was never created. And the Spirit is of the Father and the Son. The Son is the very light of very light, very light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. The three persons of God who can be never separated, who share the same nature, works as one in one single activity. So we, being finite, cannot comprehend the totality of Trinity, we hold to this totality faith of ineffable existence of God. Excellent. Go uh, to comment. All the Trinitarian words, so essence, person, consubstantial, trinity. Yeah. Okay, so Aaron, let, let's just be really clear here with Aaron. Aaron probably had the one that was probably more total in terms of agreements. But let, let me just go to this point now. His was probably the most unscriptural. Right? You feel it now. Okay. So now let's sort of just have just a quick couple of comments. How does that make you feel? Like, how do, does that sit on you a little bit unsettling? Is it, are you comfortable with that? Do you realize how much language we use to describe the eternal God? Go ahead. I have a question on that. So I think of like um, current doctrinal statements of denominations and the church groups or individual churches, you know, they'll, they'll connect to a scripture. You can connect all those ideas to one or a few that package together. Is that something you did at all um, with Nicaea or any of those other writers on the three today? Quickly connected, but we're getting this from here, or is it just understood? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I, when, when you read uh, Athanasius, who is part of the uh, that crew, uh, you read early reflections on creedal formation. 
They don't see it as derived human words. They actually see it as all of these ideas are derived from the scriptures. And so uh, scriptures are derived authoritatively from God. Creeds are derived authority from scriptures. I think they would have that type of idea. That's a good question. I think extra biblical ideas shouldn't be held to the same standard as explicit biblical language. Consubstantial language. I don't know that I would have said if Arius was heretic, it should be kicked out of the church. Uh -huh. On what basis, though? On. Even though he denied eternal generation? Yeah, I I personally would not have. Okay. Because he didn't deny that Jesus was God. Didn't deny the deity of the Son. Did not. He didn't deny anything practical for a Christian flock, Christian blood. Sure. So like even the functionality of right. scriptures for the life of Christian. Okay. Yeah. Totally fine. I would still call him a heretic. I, I think Aries is absolutely a heretic. Uh you're it, feel free to hold your own thoughts there. Um uh, yeah, good, good. Uh, thanks for sharing. Thank you for sharing. And then Chris, thanks for, thanks for, uh, sort of being quite vulnerable, honestly, uh, on both of this. Uh, good work. I'm thinking, <clears throat> it's three o'clock. How do we feel? I'm seeing some tired eyes. Uh, do we want to go for about 40 more minutes or would it be really helpful to call it right here and you guys go do research on this class? Second one? Second one? Second one? <laughs> yeah, we got nods everywhere. Darren's like, I'm going to go chill. <laughs> I got my Darren, done. Darren's all like, suckers, I'm done. <laughs> uh, well, good. Hey, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and call it a day. When we get to scriptural exegesis, we're going to come back to Augustine anyway. Augustine on the Trinity. We'll come back to this anyway. Um, we'll probably even come to Sermon 52. Sermon 52, let me just whet our appetite. Did you hear what it's called? It's a sermon. <laughs> and it's like one of these core works on, on the Trinity. Uh, I even have this like, a line right here. I was I just wrote it as I'm reflecting on like oh to have the depth of this type of theological exposition from the pulpit. Uh, and essentially uh, it's a reading of Matthew 3. So when we get to scriptural acts of Jesus, I actually just want to show you what does he do with Matthew 3? Sort of how does he get there? What does he do with that? How does he kind of derive some of the ideas there? So uh, we'll come back to it. Um, but otherwise, hey. Let's call it a day. Go get coffee. You have an hour to do some research to sort of catch up. Um, head down to the library um, if you need. Chris, head on over to Denver Seminary <clears throat> if you need. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, let's go ahead and call it a day. Thanks for a good class. Yeah, see ya.